Welcome to Cosmic Controversy with author and veteran science journalist Bruce Dormany, host of the podcast that asks probing questions about today's aerospace and astronomy. Bruce is author of Distant Wanderers, The Search for Planets Beyond the Solar System, and a Forbes.com science contributor. Now, here's Bruce. Welcome to episode 34 of Cosmic Controversy. Today, I'm pleased to welcome University of Arizona planetary geophysicist Eric Aspod as my featured guest, a winner of the prestigious 1998 Harold C. Urey Prize from the American Astronomical Society, ASPOG was part of the team behind NASA's successful Galileo and L-Cross missions. He is the author of When the Earth Had Two Moons, Cannibal Planets, Icy Giants, Dirty Comets, Dreadful Orbits, and The Origins of the Night Sky, which was published in 2019 by HarperCollins. Asteroid 7939 ASPOG is named in his honor. But today, we're going to talk about what we really know about our solar system's formation and earliest evolution. Aspog joins us from Tucson, Arizona. Eric, welcome to Cosmic Controversy. Hey, thanks a lot. It's great to be here. You write in your book that geology is the best tool to understand the universe, that geology tells us far more about extraterrestrial life, planets, comets, and the history of our solar system and beyond. Well, you know, geology is really where we are. You know, you don't have to go too far down below your feet till you get into the dirt and the earth. Some of my favorite scientists were the early thinkers like uh, Robert Hooke and, uh, you know, Isaac Newton and people who, there, there was no real science of geology yet at that time. I mean, people worked at figuring out, you know, what the environment was around them. If you can't understand the rock that's right under your feet, you're not going to have a hope to understand what's orbiting around another star. And you wrote, actually, in your book that for a long time, we knew more about the workings of mostly empty space and the movements of the wandering stars than we do about the Earth beneath our feet. You write that that's because the, the sky is always visible while the bulk of the Earth is hidden. The deepest oceanic trench is only 0.2% of Earth's radius, not even a scratch on, on an apple, as you describe it. To go down 100 meters below the ground takes a huge amount of effort, unless you're lucky enough to find a cave. And so you think about early astronomy being the, the discovery of comets and figuring out something about the moon and the sun. The early geology was these myths of Hades, and down below there was just this sort of volcanic river and that's just because digging down deep is really hard to do. And so we've been living on the surface of a planet for millions of years as sentient species and really haven't had an understanding of kind of the three-dimensional nature of our existence. That also kind of jives with the idea that, you know, for up until the early part of the 20th century, we really didn't have a good handle on the age of our own solar system, or even our own Earth. How do we know the age of our solar system? One of the earliest ways of figuring out ages was, you know, it kind of gets to the birth of geology and people starting to figure out that there were strata. You know, you'd have these layers with fossils in them, and, and that was in the past. And the deeper down you dig, you're going down into the past, sort of. And people put together time scales. Like, you look at the big sea cliff made out of layers of sediments and you might say 
well, how how rapidly could that form? And that might take you might come up with some decent estimates, like it could take a century to lay down a centimeter of sediment, something like that. And you multiply number of centuries per centimeter times the height of a stack of sediment, and you come up with these numbers that back in the 1700s were outrageous. You came up with numbers of tens of millions of years. And the Bible, of course, goes back 6,000 BC. That's kind of the beginning of time, according to these chronologies that are referenced to, to religion. And so this notion of millions of years in the past, or even hundreds of millions of years in the past were outrageous. But around the turn of this past century, the 1800s, uh, going into the 1900s, radioactivity was discovered. And it was understood that rocks, minerals, are made of crystals. And then when a rock or crystal solidifies, you know, all the atoms in that crystal are frozen in, in place from the time they form. And so let's say there's some time in the past, you don't know how long in the past, but you know this crystal formed. Once that solidification process happens, radioactive atoms in that crystal start to turn into different atoms. And it's not really clever, sophisticated math to, to, to develop these techniques, but you can measure the amounts of radioactive uh, decay products, like lead is a decay product of uranium, and you can measure and do, in fact, what's called uranium lead dating. And that'll tell you how long that little clock's been ticking inside that crystal. How long has the uranium been breaking down inside that crystal? And you get these numbers of billions of years. And it was in the 1930s that these numbers pretty much uh, ended up locking in at around 4.5 billion years ago for the ages of the oldest rocks on Earth, which and happened to be actually the meteorites. And that came about uh, first in the 1920s. You had the first estimates that these rocks, the oldest rocks might be 2.5 billion mm -hmm. years old. And then in the 30s, this technique was honed further. By the 1950s, you had a pretty hard uh, uh, estimate of 4.55 billion years for the age of the solar system. Is that right? That's right, yeah. And so the basic physics was sort of laid out in the late 1800s by Curie, and others in the early 1900s. And then it was a matter of refining the techniques because, you know, here, here's how to imagine it working. You have a rock that has all sorts of elements in it. So let's say it's a crystal of quartz, just a little crystal of quartz that forms at some point. Once it's solidified as a crystal, any atom that decays in the crystal into other atoms, those other atoms are going to stay in that crystal. And so lead is a daughter product of uranium. And uranium's quite abundant, actually. We think of it as this terrible, you know, radioactive thing, but uranium is in granites, it's in all kinds of rocks. And uranium breaks down into lead, and the longer, the, the longer that rock has been sitting around since it formed, the more lead is going to be in that rock relative to the uranium. And so it's really this simple, clean mathematical analysis. Once you can do the analytical study, you can measure the amount of lead, measure the amount of uranium, and out pops an age. And so it's really a pretty uh, clever technique uh, where each little crystal inside of a rock is, is sort of a clock that tells you when it formed. This uh, method of, of radiometric dating came of age in the 1920s, basically. Yeah, it came of age in the 20s. It was, and like you said, it was really refined in the 50s. 
until it was incontrovertible that, uh, I mean, you can reliably pick up and date rocks. Like, for instance, I live in an area that, where there was a lot of volcanism 180 million years ago. So the rocks that you'd pick up around here, you do this kind of age dating, you, you get ages of 180 million. If you find a rocky meteorite that lands on the Earth and you take a little piece of that, which was this uh, uh, study that was done in the 50s by uh, Claire Patterson, you know, these, these meteorites give you ages that are the oldest of anything we know, uh, around four and a half billion years old. And they're older than any rocks that come from the Earth. Right. That's yeah. revolutionized our understanding of, of how, the, how young the Earth is relative to everything else. How old is our solar system? Well, extrapolating this notion of age dating, you you know, how old is the solar system? Well, it's the it's the oldest age of anything we can find a piece of. The earliest ages we find in any of the most primitive meteorites is this very very convenient number. If you you know want to impress somebody and know the age of the solar system to the nearest ten thousand years, it's four point five six seven eight two. Four point five four point five six seven eight two billion years old yeah these are the oldest oldest uh minerals dated by this kind of technique that i was telling you about and that's my next question where uh, where were these minerals dated and and where from where did they, did they originate they're they're primitive stony meteorites called chondrites and those are the most frequent things that fall onto the surface of the earth. Uh, most people, when they think of meteorites, they might think of an iron meteorite or something exotic. You know, that's because they're the ones when you pick them up, you're like, wow, that thing came from space. That looks very strange. But a lot of rocks that fall to earth look kind of ordinary. And in fact, they're called ordinary chondrites. And you pick them up and you age date them and you get these very ancient ages. And if you pick through... The chondrite meteorite, which is some fragment of an asteroid, which is some fragment of a parent asteroid, just some remnant of the early solar system. And you pick through that and you look for these very, very kind of white colored grains called calcium aluminum inclusions. And people know to look for these because they're sort of exotic minerals that probably date some really early event when the first solid materials were crystallizing out of the gas and dust that was orbiting the su- the proto-sun, you know, very early on. You age date those things, and you get the oldest ages. And it's pretty consistently that number, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8.2 uh, so, billion years ago. And so these, uh, any meteorite that we would find in the Arizona desert, for instance, uh, is likely a fragment that's come off of an asteroid? Yeah, that's right. Give us a, a good parenthetical definition of an asteroid. What is an asteroid, technically? <laughs> well, there's a lot of, you know, the controversy <laughs> gets down to, like, whether you really care about what's the boundary between a meteoroid and an asteroid. And so, uh, you know, the things that hit the top of the atmosphere, like a shooting star, those are probably, you know, a, a really bright shooting star, like me- a memorable event that you might really think was super special some night. That was probably something like the size of your thumb, you know, coming through the air. Is that right? And so that's so, small. You know, that's amazing. Think, yeah, right. And so if you think of something like that as a, a as an asteroid, well, clearly you wouldn't. That's too small. But where's the boundary? And so most people put the boundary at roughly fifty meters. Kind of the operating definition is that an asteroid hitting the Earth 
is going to hit the surface and a meteorite hitting the Earth is going to blow up in space, in, in the atmosphere of the Earth. And so in other words, uh, 50 meters or, or basically about 50 yards uh, in uh, diameter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about the size of a football field, more or less. Okay. Uh, you know, or a little bit small, half a football field. And so uh, the actually the first discovery of an asteroid was made by, made by Father Giuseppe Piazzi, who was working on a new star catalog at the Palermo Observatory in Italy in 1801, and he reported the discovery of something better than a comet, <laughs> a wandering yeah. star, perhaps a planet, uh, you write in your book. He said, you write that he was able to estimate its orbital radius from our sun at nearly three Earth-Sun distances, but he lost sight of it and uh, as his fine as uh, as it moved into the night into the daytime sky, um, and but the, anyway, this object turned out to be what we know today as a dwarf planet series, if I'm not incorrect. You know, some of your listeners might know about Bode's law, which is uh, sometimes taught in you know science history. You know, back in the early days of quantitative thinking, you know, during the Middle Ages, there were in the early Renaissance people had begun to understand the the distances to Saturn and the distance to Jupiter and the distance to Venus and the distance to Mercury. These these could be interpreted by putting, you know, compiling the motions of the Earth relative to the, the other bodies. And so just basic geometry could tell you the distances to these things. And these were the known planets uh, until the uh, uh, 1600s. You know, there were no planets beyond Saturn. So Saturn was what they say the highest planet. And if you plot all these planets on a graph, you get this law that Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, except there's this gap at 2.8 times the Earth-Sun distance, 2.8 astronomical units, they call it. There's this gap between Mars and Jupiter. But then other than that, the planets fit on this pattern really well. It's this nice geometrical pattern. And then once Uranus was discovered, boom, it landed right on the line in 1781, I guess it was. It landed straight on the, on the predicted line, except for this gap at 2.8 AU, which is where the asteroid belt turns out to be. Right. Now, whether there's any realism to this theory known as Bode's Law remains to be seen. A lot of people kind of think it's just a coincidence. But by the end of the 1780s, when Uranus had been discovered, everybody in Europe was hunting for this missing planet at 2.8 AU. And Piazzi didn't know anything about this. He was just dutifully putting together his star catalog for the observatory. And he noticed in the sky this funny little thing. And he... Uh, Noticed the next day it was in a different position, and the next night, rather, it was in yet another position. And he wrote down that he had found something really interesting. You know, it might have been a comet moving around the sky that hasn't lit up yet, or uh, uh, he thought maybe it's a planet. At the meantime, just for context, there were armies of people in Europe, uh, Germany in particular, these amateur astronomers with newfangled telescopes who were just dividing the sky into sectors, searching for this missing planet. And then Piazzi just happened to find it. Months after he found it, uh, before his discovery could be 
approved, you know, uh, confirmed by other observers. Uh, like uh, you said, it uh, happened, you know, how planets end up in the morning sky, like Venus. You know, sometimes you can see it, sometimes you can't. Ceres ended up in the morning sky. Nobody could confirm his results. And when it was time to be able to see it again on the other side of the sun a few months later, nobody could find it. So for the next two or three months, it was this uh, excited re discovery of the missing planet that actually led to a, a new development in mathematics known as least squares theory. So things are all connected that way. Is, is it possible to see Ceres with binoculars from your own backyard? I never have, but, but uh, yes, you, with a good set of binoculars, you should be able to see it just barely. But it is the largest of the main belt asteroids. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's uh, about a third the diameter of the moon, or a quarter the diameter of the moon. It's a it's a big object. So let's talk about uh, the eight hundred pound gorilla in the room, which is this Oumuamua, this very bizarre interstellar asteroid or interstellar comet that has been making the news for the past couple of years. Uh, you mentioned this in your book as well. It's estimated to be about thirty two hundred and thirty meters long and only thirty five meters wide, slightly tumbling. It makes about three revolutions a day. So is this really an interstellar asteroid? And uh, why do some researchers posit that it may may even be an, an alien probe? Ah, the, al the alien probe idea is really interesting because, well, I should just say, you know, scientists are trained skeptics. So any idea that it's an alien probe becomes subject to incredible amount of scientific scrutiny. But on the other hand, scientists are trained to be pretty open-minded, or we should be. So, you know, we don't just throw out an idea because we don't like it. Oumuamua came to the inner solar system. It came south of the Earth in the sky plane. So you could, if you think of the Earth and all the planets orbiting like a pancake in a plate, you know, all orbiting counterclockwise on this plate, uh, Oumuamua came kind of south of the Earth, went around the sun, came inside the orbit of Mercury, you know, came really close to the sun and then rocketed back out on what's known as a hyperbolic orbit. Hyper hyperbolic is just ma fancy math speak for not bound to the sun. So it comes in, does kind of a bank shot around the sun and heads back out. But if you were an alien, you know, wanting to make some observations of the Earth and you wanted to do it in a very stealthy manner and not have the citizens of Earth be uh, surprised or amazed, you might think of disguising your spaceship to look like an asteroid and have it come in on an orbit that sort of gets a good view of the Earth because it spent a lot of its time inside the orbit of the Earth, you know, looking out at it. So instead of being blinded by the sun, it got a good view of the Earth. So if though if it was sort of a, a you know, probe with aliens with telescopes checking us out, that would have been a pretty good orbit to do it on. Are yeah. you actually saying that you think it's possible that uh, this could be a, a disguised alien probe, really? Yeah, no, I'm not ruling it out. I, I, think, uh, I, I think there are more uh, simpler explanations, but it is, to me, kind of remarkable that the first interstellar object we ever encountered had this deep dive to the inner solar system and came pretty close to Earth. I think that's uh, uh, unusual, you know, not like one in a million unusual, more like, you know, one in a few dozen unusual, but it was on a pretty opportune orbit. Well, here's some other stuff to think about. It was tumbling a little bit. 
And so you would imagine an object coming from millions of light years away or thousands of light years away from some other star system. By the time it got here, which would take hundreds of millions of years, anything that tumbles uh, starts to starts to even out over time because there's friction. You, you imagine something tumbling, what that tumbling state sort of means for any rock that's inside of it is that its effective gravity is, is changing cyclically every time it rotates. And it might creak around, kind of like a creaking of a, of a boat in the ocean, you know, just kind of these little creaking forces. And over time, that thing should stop tumbling and it should start spinning like a normal rotating object, like, like we think of with most planets. And so the fact that it was tumbling seemed to indicate that there had been some forcing applied to it relatively recent prior to entering the solar system. So, you know, it's easy to kind of spin off in that direction. Well, that was well, how, obvious. And how would you, and by forcing, so how would you explain that forcing? What would be the source of the forcing? Would that just be a, an encounter perhaps with a Kuiper Belt object or, or the Oort cloud, an Oort cloud object, which is this reservoir of trillions of comet, which, comets, which lie almost a light year away from, from uh, the sun? Okay, yeah. So you're getting back into the real world now, which is refreshing because they, you know there there are some things that you could say in in favor of it being an alien spaceship, but I think the more likely explanation is that it's a rogue comet. Let's say it did start out on a, in, in a, uh, as a as an object that was kicked out from an alien solar system, and it, okay. it somehow got on a trajectory that would encounter our own solar system. I'm just saying that perhaps the the tumbling motion was because of interactions, gravitational perturbations within our own Oort cloud. As it passed through the Oort cloud, it, maybe it came through, came by some objects or something that gravitationally. Yeah, there started. aren't enough. There aren't enough objects. Ah, okay. that, that would be that would be such a rare, super rare chance. Okay. Uh, you know, it kind of reminds me of the the calculation somebody did with colliding galaxies, you see these pictures of galaxies that have, that are in the process of colliding or have recently passed through each other just by random chance. Right. And the statistics are such that probably not a single star collided with another single star during that whole galactic merger. So it's kind of like that. The Oumuamua coming into our solar system, if it has any tumbling motion, it would have to probably be related to outgassing some uh, okay. commentary you know yeah. a comet yeah so pe- people have speculated that it was made out of stuff that was so cold like solid nitrogen and and that it you know it started to off gas way in the outer solar system and that by the time we saw it it had started tumbling and with less gravity it can't hold on to this cloud of comets all around it and it'll let go of about half of them Right. And so Oumuamua, to me, is probably just a comet from the outer solar system of some star that has uh, already gone off the main sequences, uh, heading off into retirement, and it loses most of its uh, comets. So the universe should be teeming with these things, but the statistics of Oumuamua is interesting because if Oumuamua is a random object, then there should be about one Oumuamua for every cubic Mars distance from the sun uh, in, in, the, in the universe. There, there should be Oumuamuas everywhere. 
uh, roughly, you know, one of them for every Mars distance cubed from the Earth. Right. But so to sum up, you basically cannot discount the fact that it potentially could be an alien probe, but your money would probably lie with a more prosaic explanation as something natural. <laughs> yeah, that's very well put. Uh, that's very diplomatically put. I, I, I think we'd be doing, uh, we'd be scientifically dishonest to discount the idea prematurely. And, uh, uh, you know, I think it's, I think it's something that's, uh, makes us uh, scratch behind our heads a little bit and, and think about the next one. There, there was another one called Comet Borisov, and that came by about, uh, what was it, a year ago? Yeah, something like and that. And Borisov yeah. was the second known object from outside the solar system to come into the solar system. And unlike Oumuamua, which was a real freak show, <laughs> simply because it wasn't much of a show. I mean, Oumuamua came in and it, it didn't light up like a comet. It just sort of did this stealth act, came past the Earth. And if we didn't have telescopes, we never would have, you know, high-powered telescopes, we never would have discovered it. Uh, Borisov lit up like a comet. It looked just like any other comet. And so now we're waiting for number three. So, but to be but to be clear, we uh, even though we were able to detect Oumuamua, we were not able to see really any detail on the object itself, uh, because which would have enabled us to to get a much better handle on whether it was natural or or something uh, artificial, right? Yeah, that's an important point because there's lots of artists' renditions of Oumuamua, but you know, all we saw was a dot of light uh, okay. and that dot of light, you know, had uh, certain properties to it. It, it, it was, uh, you, you look at this dot with the most powerful telescopes in the world and it's still just a dot, but you can see it in different colors at different, uh, as, you, the reason we know that it's tumbling is because it's brightness changes non periodically with time. It has this little, you know, kind of like, uh, kind of like looking at a, at a water droplet, uh, you know, leaving the faucet, it's going to have different shapes and rotation angles to you. And so it's going to change how bright it is over time. So we put together a story, essentially. So in other words, we weren't able to get enough detail on this object to, to see the banner that said, take us to your leader. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, not this one, at least. <laughs> okay. So anyway, let's talk about the moon. Uh, a press release notes that the mountainous region on the far side of the moon, known as the lunar far side highlands, may be the solid remains of a co collision with a smaller companion moon, according to a new study by planetary scientists at the uh, University of California, Santa Cruz. The study suggests that this giant impact also created another smaller body initially sharing an orbit with the moon that eventually fell back onto the moon and coated one side with an extra layer of solid crust, tens of kilometers thick. So in any event, the, the lunar far side is significantly um, more cratered uh, or has more has a thicker crust than the near side? Yeah, the it's sort of a fundamental feature of the moon. I guess the moon has uh, three fundamental geological features. You know, one is that it doesn't seem to have an iron core, which is different from any other planet. It seems to be mostly just a big chunk of rock without a core. And then it it's almost entirely igneous. So it's all made out of basalts and things that would form from melted rock. Right. So th that's called an igneous rock. And then the crust on the far side, whatever would float to the top of an igneous object, 
the crust on the far side is about twice as thick as it is on the near side. We're going to talk about what potentially could have caused this, but you note in your book there is an interesting story that I have never heard. During the Cold War, you note that the U.S. spied on Russia using high-altitude balloons, which were launched into the jet stream from Europe and then collected in Alaska. However, you write that on the coldest Siberian mornings, these balloons would lose elevation to the point that they could be shot down by Russian MiGs. <laughs> I had no idea. <laughs> and engineers would pick apart the American technology once they found the remains of these balloons. And among their finds were radiation and temperature-tolerant film, much of it unexposed. So then, coincidentally, many years later, the chief engineer of the Soviet's uh, Luna 3 uh, lunar probe camera system reveal that he had secretly taken this American balloon film, trimmed it to size, and loaded it into the moonbound camera uh, of the Soviets uh, of their Luna 3 probe. And you write that the first images of the lunar far side were projected by a Russian camera onto U.S. spy film. <laughs> yeah. That's an amazing story. Yeah, that was, totally like, that was like 1959, the heyday of the Cold War. And we had spent a lot of all the technology that went to the moon in the 50s and, and the 60s was based on the U.S. USSR Cold War and including the well, the rockets that brought us there, obviously, those were all ICBMs. The, the Saturn V rocket was like the world's biggest ICBM. And the Cold War itself was sort of a proxy for, you know, who can build the biggest uh, most dangerous rocket. If you can, you know, send humans to the moon and back, then clearly you can deliver nukes anywhere on the earth if you wanted to. So, so sort of this proxy battle in space. But the Luna 3 expedition that gave us the first images of, of the lunar far side was really phenomenal because the Russians had great cameras. They had great this great technology for building cameras where you would take the picture and you know you couldn't just deliver the film where you wanted to anymore you wanted to deliver data by radio but there was no such thing as digital signals and you would scan just like you do with a fax machine a fax machine that sends data over an analog phone line that's what made faxes such a transformative technology back in the 70s was that you could take a picture send it over the phone lines and turn it into another picture and it involved this little scanner and so on board the spacecraft they take a picture they develop the film on the spacecraft and then they scan it through a scanner and send that radio signal back to earth where basically a fax machine prints out the picture for you you know it's very terrible quality but you get a, you get the first picture of the backside of the moon and the missing link to all of this was that the Russians didn't have film that wouldn't fog up in the radiation of space. And the U.S. had this film because they were using it in these super high-altitude balloons. And uh, the Russians just happened to get their, get their hands on it. But I, I think it's one of the most beautiful stories of inadvertent uh, cooperation in space. So let's get back to the moon. It's known that the moon has a lightweight crust that's chemically similar to Earth. And one reason may be that the moon was formed after a Mars-sized object struck Earth some 4.5 billion years ago. The collision it's proposed flung the top layer of the, of the Earth into space, where the debris combined to form the moon, 
But you note in your book that the theory's details on this uh, moon-forming impact have been unraveling, leading to a host of modified scenarios. How have they been unraveling? Well, the main way it's unraveled is uh, in the 80s when, or 70s and 80s, when the concept of the moon being formed in a giant impact first evolved, after the Apollo missions brought back all these samples showing that the moon was igneous and, and we knew that it didn't have a core, you know, how do you resolve this? It was explained by this idea of a giant impact. But the problem with the giant impact theory, once you model it in detail on a computer with codes that include shock physics and self-gravity and complex interactions of two planets that are colliding, you end up uh, forming the moon mostly out of the impacting planet, not out of the Earth. You make the moon mostly out of the thing that hit the Earth. And that's a really big problem because if you look at the rocks of the moon, which we have spent you know, thousands and thousands of research days, you know, trying to understand the lunar rocks. How do uh, you figure out where the rocks came from and, you know, what sort of properties do they have? One of the fundamental properties of a rock is its isotopic abundances. Just a brief digression, oxygen, for example, you think oxygen, we breathe oxygen, it's in the atmosphere, but most of the oxygen is in the rocks, uh, a typical rock in the moon's crust, a typical rock in the Earth's crust is about 40% oxygen. And then oxygen comes in three different flavors, three different isotopes, oxygen 16, oxygen 17, oxygen 18. Those are the three different weights of oxygen. You can think of them in three different flavors. Moon has the same flavors of oxygen exactly as the Earth does. And so if the moon, can, and that applies to other elements as well, like titanium, chromium. And so if the moon was formed from this collision, and it mostly derived from the impactor in the collision, why would the Earth and the moon be identical in their isotopic compositions? So what's your ex explanation? I don't have one. <laughs> the, the impact theorists retreated because uh, back around, uh, around 2001, the impact theorists, uh, including myself, we had sort of said, hey, we figured it out. Here's the answer. You can make the moon. You make the moon of the right mass, the right size, you know, the right core, the right composition. It has the right composition, but it doesn't have the right isotopic composition. It's not made of the right flavors of oxygen. It's not made of the right flavors of, uh, of chromium. And so we need a different model. My, the current stuff that I'm working on is that the moon forming giant impact wasn't just one giant impact. It was maybe two or three giant impacts uh -huh. between, the same, between the same two objects. How could you have a, a multiple impact from the same object? Well, the fact is, it's because the sun's in the middle of everything. And we've tended to be thinking about the moon, the proto-impactor uh, that hit the Earth to make the moon, Theia, uh, they've called it. You know, we, we think of uh, Theia and the Earth as just, there's this one chance, and it's this event, it hits the Earth and it makes the moon. But the truth is, everything's orbiting the sun. And the other truth is that it's very hard to have two things hit and just stick. The physics is quite different, but you can imagine, take a clay ball and another clay ball and try to throw the one clay ball at the other one and have them stick, it has to be like just the right speed. If you hit it too fast, it'll keep going. If you hit it too slow, it won't make it there. And so you have to have this velocity where it hits 
and, and happens to stick. The giant impact theory that was developed around 2000 in terms of, you know, refined models, we found, we found that you had to have this sweet spot collision, not too fast, because if it was too fast, it would keep going. And we call that a hit and run collision. And it turns out, this is stuff that we figured out in the last 10 years, hit and run collisions are most of them. Most yeah. of them are not just accretions. Most planetary collisions, the two planets collide and they keep going, but they're both orbiting the sun, and so they probably collide again. Ah, and so the okay. theory that we're working on, we're actually about to submit it. It's uh, about, but S- you know, submit it as a paper. Beans here because we've we've talked about it in, in conference abstracts. Uh, but it's that there was a hit and run collision, and then about a million years later. There was a second collision, and maybe even after that, there was a third collision, and that that sort of helps explain how the Earth and the Moon ended up being kind of the same composition. Uh-huh. Uh, what it implies is that the whole event was way, way more complicated and messy than we think it was. So then what caused the gap between Mars and Jupiter? When I was a kid, if I remember correctly, the idea of what caused the gap was simply that the gravitational influence of Jupiter was so overwhelming that a planet could not form there, and that's why we have the main asteroid belt. It but, was a good explanation, but it kind of fell apart in the details when you tried to actually make it work. Because if Jupiter is... I mean, we went through a big transition from the time we learned science and planetary science until today... It, it used to be thought that the planets formed and pretty much stayed where they were once they formed. Jupiter formed at 5 AU, you know, five times the Earth-Sun distance. Saturn formed at about 10 AU. And the planets formed, and that's where they sat forever. And if that's the case, this gap is very hard to explain because, okay, Jupiter has some influence there, but it's not like it's going to wipe out the possibility to grow any planets. And so fast forward to today, just to give your listeners a bit of a flavor for what's going on in the academic hallways, there's debates about how much did the giant planets move? You know, we talked about canonical models for the formation of the moon, where canonical basically means it's the punching bag. You know, we take turns beating on it to see if we can come up with something better. The canonical model now for the outer solar system is that Jupiter actually started plowing into the inner solar system really early on, like in the first few thousands of years or hundreds of thousands of years of solar system history. And Jupiter started plowing inwards and then got stopped by the emergence of Saturn. Saturn started to grow and kind of stopped that motion and pulled Saturn and pulled Saturn, pulled Jupiter back out and, that pile driving event early on carved a canyon in the mass distribution of the inner solar system so that there was not enough matter to form anything bigger than Mars. That's the current canonical model. It's probably wrong, right? But right. it's what we use as a reference going forward. So then while we're at it, let's talk about uh, why you think the moons of the, about the, the moons of our inner solar system. Uh, only two planets in the inner solar system have moons, uh, our own moon, and then Mars. And and the ones around Mars are not really technically 
moons in in the strict sense. I mean, they're basically just kind of asteroids, uh, Deimos and Phobos. So uh, why doesn't Mercury have a moon, and why doesn't Venus have a moon? Yeah, I mean, that that's kind of uh, the 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 centroid of all the questions that I'm thinking about now in my current research program because you can come up with an answer for why the Earth has a moon and is it consistent with Venus not having a moon, Mercury not having a moon, Mars having these two tiny moons. And I think it's really fundamental because when we think about the origin of life, we tend to think about terrestrial planets, terrestrial planetary systems like our own. So moons are kind of the the telltale signatures of what happened here. The moon around the Earth, that's clearly a signature of some giant impact that we might hope to figure out, like what exactly happened or even approximately happened. And then Venus not having a moon, can you explain that two terrestrial planets, both about the same mass, if giant impacts were relatively common, if that's how the planets grew, if that's how they acquired their their matter from gobbling up smaller planets, uh, you know, why would not Venus have a moon? Why would Venus not be rotating? It's uh, rotating retrograde to the Earth. It's rotating west to east instead of east to west, and then it, or, or west to east, inst- east to west instead of west to east. And it's uh, at a period of something like 243 days, if I recall. Yep. Um, That's right, yeah. Almost almost stopped dead in its tracks. And so we need to make all these theories consistent with one another. The way to think about Venus is it's essentially not rotating at all, and it has no moon. And the Earth is spinning really fast compared to not only to Venus, but if you imagine that the Earth has been slowing down because the moon has been evolving away from the Earth ever since the moon was born, the moon has been moving farther and farther from the Earth. And it's because of this tidal friction effect where the moon is slowing down the Earth and gaining angular momentum that's spinning it into higher and higher orbits. If you wind that clock backwards, and this is what George Darwin did back in the 1870s or 1860s, the son of Charles Darwin, by the way, he did this first calculation of what if the moon originated at the same time that the Earth was born uh, you know, and, and you sort of imagine the moon being at some point orbiting right above the equator of the Earth, you'd have an Earth that was spinning with a period of five hours. That's kind of the combined spin of the Earth-Moon system is represented by a planet spinning with a period of five hours. Right. So why is it so different from Venus, which is stopped dead in its tracks, and Mercury, for that matter, which spins every couple of months? Well, what I'm, so, my point, my yeah. point is, it's very, I think it's kind of bizarre that the inner solar system has so relatively few moons, but the outer solar system, Jupiter, Saturn, and uh, the planets of the outer solar system, have, have a hell of a lot of moons. I mean, you know, uh, compared yeah. to to what we have with the inner solar system, kind of give us a short answer on on why you think uh, Mercury, Mars, and and Mars are uh, Mercury. Venus and Mars really Mars has asteroids as moons basically if I sort of yeah you know why why do you think the inner solar system aside from our own uh, Earth which has an anomalously large moon compared to the size of the Earth has so few moons well the the basic answer is that we 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 think that the moons around Jupiter and Saturn at least maybe not Uranus and Neptune but Jupiter and Saturn 
we think that their their moons formed around them kind of the way that planets formed around the sun. We think that there was a disk of material, you know, early on during Jupiter's formation. Jupiter would be the classical object where you had basically, I should say for context, many of the stars in the universe are doublet stars. It's pretty easy if you have an agglomeration of gas and dust that's going to become a star. It's pretty easy to... Uh, end up in situations where you form a doublet star, two, two concretions orbiting each other. And so Jupiter could have been a star, but it didn't get enough mass. But it, it gobbled up hydrogen and helium from the disk really early on. That's why Jupiter has almost the same composition as the Sun. And so does Saturn. It has almost the same composition as the Sun because it was made of the same gas as the Sun. Never got big enough to become a star, but it was big enough to accrete its own nebula of material around it, and it, be, it formed a satellite-forming disk. And so most of the satellites we see in the outer solar system, we think formed from these accretion disks around the planets themselves, whereas in the inner solar system, we think the satellites, where they exist, probably formed by giant impacts. So a very different process. Is there any evidence that the original positions of the planets in our inner solar system may have actually changed position. So in other words, was Earth ever closer to the sun than Venus, and was Mars ever closer to the sun than Earth? Uh, because today the orbits of the major planets are, as you note, stable on time scales of billions of years. It depends how far back you want to go. I mean, Earth, prior to the giant impact that made the moon, we call it proto-Earth because it only had maybe 90% of its mass. Venus at some point was proto-Venus, Mercury was proto-Mercury, and you go back farther in time and it's all pretty murky, but the way that we like to think about planet formation in the terrestrial zone, that is Mars and inwards towards the sun, we tend to think of maybe a dozen, 20, 30, 40 moon to Mars-sized planets orbiting the sun very early on. While Jupiter's doing its own thing and gobbling up the gas and accreting a disk that's going to form its satellite system in the terrestrial zone, it was planets that were gobbling up each other. They would get scattered into kind of these random orbits and they'd collide. The last of these collisions made the moon. That's the standard model right now is that you had this late stage, as we call it, of planetary collisions you know, what we look at now is kind of the end state of all that. And the end state is pretty stable. Mercury's orbiting pretty circular orbit. Venus is orbiting in a pretty circular orbit. Earth, Mars. And that sort of indicates that once they were done gobbling each other up and turning into the four planets we have today, plus the moon, uh, they are they were unlikely to be perturbed into new orbits. Um, you know, one, one way to think about that is you see a nice piece of clockwork, which the inner solar system is. The planets are orbiting pretty much all in a plane around the sun. They're orbiting in pretty much circular orbits. It would be really extraordinary to have two of those planets swap positions and then end up being back in really nice, plain, ordinary circular orbits. You'd expect things to be all haywire, you know, Venus orbiting across the pole of the sun or something like that. 
So you note uh, that our own solar system appears to be anomalous in comparison to what we know now about extrasolar planets and extrasolar planetary systems. Most uh, systems discovered around other stars are much more tightly packed than ours, with Jupiter-sized planets well inside of one Earth-Sun distance. So is there a strong selection bias in our observation simply because it's so much easier to detect planets that are massive and closer to the star? Or do you think uh, our solar system is truly bizarre on this count? Yeah, that that's the, you know, $64 question right now. It's, uh, <laughs> you, 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 you don't, you, you know that it's biased because the observational techniques uh, make it much easier to see a planet when it's close to the star. You'd think it would be the other way around. You'd think, like, uh, it's too bright near the star. So if I, you know, if the planet's farther from the star, I'd, I'd be more likely to see it. But the truth is, no matter how far away the planet is from the star, you almost never are going to directly image the planet. Uh, it's kind of like Oumuamua, which we talked about earlier. You just see a dot of light, which is the star, which is the whole solar system that you're examining. And that dot of light has changes going on you uh, piece together all this information through what are called transits, that is, planets that happen to have little mini-eclipses that we actually can infer that a planet is going in front of the star because that bright spot, the, the point of light that we're looking at, dimmed a little bit. And then you also have these things called radial velocity measurements, which is that a massive planet orbiting a star actually whips the star around if you imagine Jupiter orbiting the sun, but put Jupiter way inside the orbit of Mercury, whipping around the sun, it's going to yank the sun around a little bit. And the sun is going to be coming towards you and away from you, and towards you and away from you every few days as that super massive nearby planet orbits around the star. And you can actually detect that through the Doppler effect. You can actually see the star light getting blue-shifted and red-shifted and blue-shifted and red-shifted as the planet orbits it. All these things are biased to detecting planets really close in. And Earth, you would never, you would never detect an Earth right now uh, at 1 AU around another star. So there is that bias, yet we haven't seen anything that even remotely resembles our system. Interestingly enough, you talk in your book about the extraordinary diversity of planets in our own solar system. And you, you're a bit puzzled by that. Uh, you note that, uh, you know, we have these terrestrial mass planets in the inner solar system and then these gi gas giants and then these ice giants and, and uh, a wide variety of asteroids and, and comets. And you quote Tolstoy's Anna Karenina as it relates to the diversity of planets in your book. And he wrote... All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. And those, thus all accreted planets are alike. Every unaccreted planet is unique in how it was not accreted. So if you want to have an interesting story, Tolstoy would say, you have to start with an unhappy family. Uh, if you want to have an interesting planet, you have to start with something that's had not a direct path to formation. And so diversity is the survival of many consequential events. 
every planet that you see today is some remnant of a process that went on before that consumed almost all the material before it. One way to think about it is Earth and Venus. Earth and Venus have most of the mass of the inner solar system, about 96% of the mass of the inner solar system. And then there's uh, uh, Mars uh, and Mercury, which are, you know, much smaller. Earth and Venus were built out of maybe 20 objects that were the size of Mars and Venus, uh, of, of Mars and Mercury. And so if Earth and Venus have been gobbling up all these small planets to build themselves, the two that are left, are they typical? No, they're extraordinary for having not been consumed by the Earth and Venus as they grew. What should the planetary geophysics community be doing that it isn't? You know, one of the main things is uh, sample return from as many objects as possible. I, I, I think the, a lot of the speculation that I've talked about in this interview is uh, based on the fact that we have reliable samples from the moon. We have a few samples from Mars, but they're highly selected. They come in the form of meteorites that got blasted from the surface of Mars. And by inference, we believe they came from Mars. We have no meteorites that we know of from Mercury, or we probably have some, but we don't know that they came from Mercury because we don't know what we're looking for. And we have no samples from the surface of Venus. Samples of these planets could help constrain all these theories. And so I think if I had to put my money in a basket and say what to spend it on, uh, I'd love to get samples from Venus. It's very hard to get to the surface and even survive operationally. So I'd say Mercury samples would be a really big deal. Um, for example, if you found out that Mercury rocks were as similar to the Earth as moon rocks are, it would revolutionize everything that I've been telling you about. And so that's one thing that we, and should, why, we and, should be doing. And why is oh, that? Go ahead. And why and why why would it revolutionize everything? Well, if Mercury turned out to be made of isotopically similar material as Earth, it would imply that the inner solar system was really homogenized early on, and that would lend credence to these ideas that maybe the solar system that we observe today wasn't even the original solar system. Maybe there was a solar system that predated our own solar system. Um, you know, maybe our solar system used to look more like the ones we're used to seeing in the telescopes looking at exoplanets, and you had some planets that got into trouble and collided with each other, and we could be a second-generation solar system. Uh, that, you know, those, those kinds of theories are really outside the box, except for the fact that we're starting to see solar systems that look really different from our own, and now we're facing this problem of explaining why our solar system is is unique. And so, uh, you know, is Mercury compositionally very different from the Earth? That would give you some constraints on models for how much material could mix as the planets formed. Is it very similar to the Earth? You know, that would give you another set of models. And so I think if we want to understand how planets form, and by extension, how habitable planets like the Earth form, I think we, uh, we need to be getting some samples from planets like Mercury. And when you talk about a, a second solar system, you mean that the sun would remain our star. It's just that the 
there would be kind of catastrophic events in a much earlier solar system that would create a kind of a second generation system of planets around the same star. Exactly. Like you could imagine, it's easier to imagine than to actually do the science, right? Right. But you could imagine uh, a a couple of Neptune mass planets orbiting inside the orbit of Mercury, for example, that collided and uh, and debris. Uh, you know, in that like Earth is one one fifteenth of the mass of a Neptune, and Earth is one three hundredth of the mass of a Jupiter. So if you had large planets in the inner solar system that collided and you know, some of that material got uh, accreted by the sun or, you know, other things, uh, giant, giant planets can migrate at a very fast rate uh, due to interactions with smaller debris. So you, you can easily imagine early solar systems that then led to our own solar system. The only problem is those ideas are so far-fetched because we're used to thinking in terms of the planets formed and then they stayed there till today. It, it, it gets into this special pleading. I, I have a friend of mine who works on the Nice model, which is this idea of forming uh, the terrestrial planets and the giant planets through these big instabilities where the giant planets move around. And they can make it work, by which I mean leave behind some planets that look like the Earth. Uh, they can make it work like 1% of the time and you and you say, well, that's not a very good result because it only works one percent of the time, and they and he'll say, well, no, it's an excellent result because you only need to have it happen that way once. <laughs> <laughs> so when you look at a clear sky from your own backyard, what goes through your head and why? These questions we've been discussing: how how unique are we? You know, every one of those stars I look at likely has a planet. Uh, several of the stars I see in the sky likely has uh, a solar system. And so trying to understand how lucky we are or how average we are, I think that's the most important question for me. And just looking up at the sky, I guess part of it, 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 it also is humbling. You know, I'm probably not going to figure this out. Right. It's and and uh, somebody out there in the cosmos might be the one who's already done that. Eric, do you have a way that listeners can contact you on social media or via email if they want to comment or learn more? Oh, yeah, probably Twitter is probably the best. My Twitter is at small planets, all one word, small planets. As always, please follow Cosmic Controversy at brucedormany.podbean.com or at bdormany on my Twitter feed. Eric Aspog, thanks for helping us better understand why geology is so crucial to unlocking the secrets of our solar system. Well, thanks for having me on, Bruce. It's a real pleasure to uh, help communicate some of this stuff. And, uh, you know, knowledge comes from all directions. So it's, uh, it'll be great to hear from, uh, from any of your listeners. Thanks for being a part of the podcast today. This has been Cosmic Controversy with Bruce Dormany. Please follow Bruce on Facebook, on Twitter at bdormany, or his regular posts on Forbes.com. Until next time, clear skies. Music provided by RFM. <laughs>